All right, you guys ready? Let's rock. Yes, sir. Founded in 1966, Five Star for Generations was known to basketball insiders and people involved with the game as one of the showcases for outstanding players of the future. Over the years, many of the greats have come through Super Garf's doors. Names like Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, Christian Leitner, Grant Hill, LeBron James, and on and on. They have also worn the famed orange five-star shirts and shorts. Today, we look back at some of that history, but also dive into the bright present to talk about the new stocking stuffer bookazine and five-star gear, perfect for completing holiday gift giving. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the 99 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Barnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Meyer. And today we are joined by three special guests to take us on a trip down five-star basketball camp memory lane. Uh, today we have Ali Danwa, who essentially wrote the entire five-star magazine um, and is also the author of The Boys of Dunbar, which was made into a 30 for 30 by ESPN. And from the five-star side of things, we have Carl Bloom and Peter Robert Casey. Guys, we super appreciate you guys sitting down with us today um, and, and getting to talk a little a little basketball nostalgia. So welcome to the 99 Podcast. Thank you. The honor's ours. <laughs> Glad to be here. So, PRC, since you stepped up and, and spoke first, I'm going to kick it to you first. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how the magazine came to be and, and how this project got from um, idea to completion in this this bookazine, this coffee table bookazine that I have in front of me right now? Yeah, I'll actually rewind it back. I was a little disappointed my name wasn't dropped amongst all those famous alumni <laughs> that came to camp. Hey, we're going we're, we're gonna to get to that. We're going to get to that. <laughs> camp memories. In, sincerity, <laughs> you know, in, in full sincerity, I went to the camp and I played in the NIT division, which was like the middle of the pack, the kids that w- weren't going anywhere in the in the basketball careers. And I was a, a first and third quarter player, which means I wasn't a closer. And so I knew my career was over. But you know, fast forward, that was in the late 90s. Fast forward five years ago, we, we got 14,000 photos, you know, when we acquired the business. Uh, Howard Garfinkel, the f- co-founder of Five Star Basketball Camp, was a, a f- photographer, an aficionado, always had a camera around his neck and was always taking photos. So we inherited 14,000 photos, which we digitized. And while I was going through those literally one by one, I went down memory lane and I said, this someday has to become a coffee table book. Right. Yes. And so fast forward a couple of years after that, we acquired Slam, the legendary magazine that we're you know, re-energizing and, and modernizing. And Slam is a publisher. And I said, now is the opportune time to bring that five star Think about a coffee table magazine, which is where it became the bookazine, if you will, as you guys uh, called it. So I there was one writer who I was friends with since, you know, literally 2009. We used to write together at Bounce Magazine, a streetball publication that's no longer with us. Ali, I've been a huge fan of his writing. I knew he brought full flavor to, to the mix. He knew the five star history and legacy. And we had already gone down a path once upon a time of thinking about five stars as a documentary too. And 
What we quickly learned is that there's not a lot of rich archival video footage, but we had a lot of photos. Mm. So the best version of this story, in our opinion, uh, was, you know, maybe doing a podcast narrative, which, you know, which is coming, but more fittingly, more recently is to bring this to life in a bookazine. So, so Ali came to the table and Carl, my colleague over on the five star side, really did a lot of the legwork credit to him and like putting the structure of this thing together and, and bringing it to reality. I love it. I wanted to throw it to Carl next, actually, because I, I I just got done uh, talking about and reading the the '96 Slam uh, draft uh, and love that. And there's a story in there about the cover. So I wanted to ask Carl like how he started to put together the the cover, whoever contributed to the cover and the pictures that are on there, because you know it makes an impact when you see it sitting on a table. The guys that are on there and it just starts to peel away those layers of history. The layout is super dope too, super Carl. Cool. You killed it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't take uh, I can't take too much credit on the layout. Um, you can on yeah. this show. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> listening to it. We have uh, we have great design guys. Uh, you know, a lot of help from Slam uh, putting that all together. But I think when you look at um, the rich history of Five Star, you go in the photo archive. It's like where do you begin? There's just so much in there. Um, so many, so many great names. So many all time greats. Um, so when you're putting together the cover, you're like, how do we encompass all that? What's the what's the accurate snapshot of that? Um, so, of course, you know, we wanted to get uh, the, the big flashy names, Michael Jordan, the, the coaches, um, the, the players and coaches, because it was both things. It was it was players and coaches coming together, um, being a part of something historic. And we wanted to make sure that the cover um, got your attention right away and let you know that this was a really special, special place for basketball. Yeah, that's dope. So I was going to, um, I was going to throw it because when we, when we talk about five star and we get into the magazine, it, it, it starts with, with Garf, right. Who's already been, uh, mentioned several times. And, uh, Ali, this question's for you. When you were, um, when I was reading the story about that, you mentioned that you spoke to Garf a lot. Um, and I don't want to give away like the whole story, uh, that you guys wrote in, in the magazines because I want people to buy this thing and, and read it for themselves. Um, but I was curious as I was reading through that article, what is one of your favorite Garf stories that you guys talked about, um, leading up to this? <laughs> I don't know. It's really difficult to pinpoint one favorite Garth story. Um, I mean, he was just such a fascinating character, right? He was almost this caricature that was pulled out of a Woody Allen movie who's uh, operated his office out of a booth at the Carnegie Deli. And you could actually write a movie about Garth and end it prior to him forming Five Star and it would just be a fascinating look at New York, at college basketball in the 1950s and 1960s. He was just a remarkable person. Um, he was born into wealth. He abhorred the thought of inheriting the largest textile uh, center and uh, business operation in the country. His, his life was laid out comfortably before him. Uh, but he was a sports junkie. He had paid his unofficial internships at the old Madison Square Garden on 50th Street and 8th Avenue, being a part of those legendary doubleheaders and 
just being a part of a really wacky and bizarre group of characters who regularly attended those games um, and got together uh, in the lobby to argue and fight and debate and, and talk about basketball. But the fascinating thing, I think, about golf is, is maybe not so much one individual story, although I will kind of share one of my favorites is just that, you know, here was a man who gave no hint that he would be one of the architects that built and elevated the game of basketball um, in the late 20th century, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's one of the game's late 20th century architects. He was a giant in the development of the game through his love and vision and drive left an everlasting impact on high school, college, and the pro games, right? The ripples of his essence are still being felt and disseminated to this very day, right? If, if you just looked at this year's conference finals in the bubble, um, on the TV side, you had the, the wonderful dynamic duo of Mark Jackson um, and Jeff Van Gundy, both five-star alums. Um, the coach of the Denver Nuggets, Mr. Malone, was a five-star alum as a coach. Um, and there were numerous players um, in those conference finals. You know, uh, of course, the, the biggest and the baddest being LeBron James, uh, being a, a five-star alumnus. So his fingerprints and what he created are still impacting people today. So for people that that love basketball and watch basketball and just get a thrill out of seeing Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and, and all of the great players, not just of today, but who are fans of the history of the game and going back to, you know, the, um, just the talent that flowed into the NBA in the late sixties, all the way through today. Uh, you really get a full understanding and that's what that story kind of touches on uh, in, in terms of golf, starting his own AAU team, volunteering as a coach at the YMCA, uh, hustling to get sponsors for his teams and his programs, kind of starting to understand that what it meant to have talent, being recognized by college coaches who thought that he could help them in identifying players because obviously back then the recruiting budgets were minimal. So those coaches kind of depended on people in certain kind of high spots and cities to kind of help them um, look at, you know, what kids might make an impact and be a good fit for their programs. And, and golf was a, was a point person kind of in that pipeline that sent a lot of great New York city players to, to various schools around the country. Probably one of my favorite golf stories is just his, um, his interaction with Bob Wade, the coach of the legendary Dunbar high school poets, um, in the early 1980s, Bob Wade brings an amazing assemblage of talent up to five star um, summer of 1982, I want to say. And, you know, Garf is just excited to have him. Uh, Wade has been a fixture at five star as one of the uh, teachers and lecturers and just brought an, an incredible amount of talent over the years. And that year, the number one player in the country was a guy by the name of Reggie Williams, who would go on to be the MVP of the 1984 National Championship game um, as a freshman. 
for Georgetown University. And he had a bunch of other just unbelievably long-limbed, talented players. And the shortest guy to climb out of that van was a five-foot-three-inch point guard that wasn't known outside of Baltimore by the name of Tyrone Bogues, uh, whose nickname was Muggsy, which was required on the playgrounds of Baltimore because they said that every time he stole the ball from an opponent when he was a little kid, it seemed like he was mugging them. (laughs) And so Garfinkel, you know, this camp had probably eight to 10 big time point guard recruits who were nationally known, who were already on the national radar. But outside of Baltimore, no one knew who Muggsy was. So in the draft, uh, Wade was given the opportunity to pick the first point guard. Now, Pearl Washington was in that camp, the legendary Dwayne Pearl Washington, who really single-handedly elevated that Syracuse program and put 30,000 people in the Carrier Dome seats and um, was just truly instrumental in the building of the Big East Conference. Pearl was just one of many great point guards in that camp, including uh, Tommy Amaker, one of the greatest defensive point guards, one of the great recruits um, that helped Mike Krzyzewski begin to build the infrastructure of the great Duke dynasty and all these other guys. So when Bob Wade had the chance to pick the first uh, point guard, he chose Muggsy and uh, Goff became irate because he hadn't Muggsy yet play in the scrimmage. At this point, the guys were just doing drills and kind of various tryouts. And so he hadn't seen what Muggsy was capable of. And so he said that he was going to avoid the draft. Tempers really were raised. These guys got chest to chest. Now, mind you, Bob Wade is a former National Football League defensive back <laughs> for the likes of Otis Taylor. He was a bear of a Garf's man. Garf's out of his league. <laughs> and Garf was just out of his league, right? So eventually kind of they simmer down and Wade says, look, I know what I'm doing. Not only am I taking Muzzy, but I am designating him as my horse. The PRC clear that he got the third quarter, but each team had one player that was designated as a horse that could play the entire game. Now the horse was designated for people like Moses Malone and Patrick Ewing, right? These transcendent future Hall of Fame talents that just um, just were unbelievable. And the fact that Wade said he was going to use Muggsy as his horse really threw Goff into a state of rage. Eventually, they calmed down and they made a bet. And he said, Wade, you're not going to win a single game with this guy as your point guard. Uh, and also, you know, you, you don't have a really good center. And Wade said, not only am I going to win every game, but I'm going to win the championship with this kid. And uh, long story short, Muggsy just mesmerizes, um, shocks and amazes to see him operate as a five foot three inch revolutionary talent that could dominate a game without scoring a point. And at the end of that camp, um, if, if you read Garth's kind of five star uh, summary and his HSBI report on Muggsy. Not only did he give him five stars, but he called him the greatest peanut since planters. <laughs> Ali, you need to write some of that stuff down. That was good. 
<laughs> hey, I, I think one of the things I wanted to hit on though that I was listening to you is so amazing about this is that not only is it all the names that you listed and the stories that come out of it, but it's the way that those stories have spun into the actual fabric of basketball. Like the things that happened at Five Star became what basketball is on so many levels, taught in gyms all over the country. And I, I think that, that that's an incredible piece of it as well. So my question becomes to PRC, I'll throw this to you, bud. Um, my question becomes, does, does Garf get his just due uh, in your mind for everything that he brought as a basketball innovator, I would say? Um, you know, it, it, does he get his just due in your mind? So, you know, arguably no, if you answer that net, net, no. However, the coaches whose lives he shaped and the jobs he helped get them, including, by the way, John Calipari, Rick Pitino, um, on and on, Dick Vitale when he got the Rutgers job, all credit Garf for opening that door for them, giving them the platform to teach at camp and then take that and go to the next level and vouch for them. And so, you know, right now what we're, we're told he's actually – on the 2021 Naismith Hall of Fame ballot. Oh, nice. nice. All these coaches, and you know, including Bob Knight, who got behind him. He's already in the New York City Basketball Hall of Fame. He's in the upstate New York Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's in the, the, the National College Basketball Hall of Fame. But that didn't come until the very end of his life. It was long yeah. overdue yeah. when he got the college nod. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't taste as sweet as it, as it sure. could have been because it felt like a make good. But, you know, I don't think he gets the credit. But if you know basketball, what, what Ali was saying, if you went to that camp, Garf treated it as if it was a Broadway show. He was a maestro. He would give these 20 minute introductions to these coaching, you know, these coaches who would come and lecture at the camp, making them feel like the biggest thing ever. <laughs> and every second, every minute of that camp was scripted. Um, in, in such meticulous fashion. And he was so wound up all the time. He was a perfectionist with all the details that not only could he lure the talent and, and identify the talent, but he knew the production of the camp business. He, he always said, he, you know, he went to camp as a kid at Camp Mascoma up in New Hampshire, and he loved the idea of camp. And then he worked at Jack Donahue's camp called Friendship Farm, which was like a general all sports camp, but, you know, specialized in basketball. And, you know, being a competitive guy that he was, he says, I could do this better. And so that kind of prompted him after launching HSBI to, to found Five Star. And he just put every ounce of his, of his love and, and affection into this, you know, what, what he focused on was teaching the game the right way. And so, you know, he doesn't get enough credit more broadly. But if you if you know basketball, you went to the camp, you know, the impact that he had in the Hall of, Hall of Fame would be a, a nice touch. Yeah. Yeah. You I mean, necessary, necessary. For sure. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think that it, it feels weird to leave that some people get left out when they have this big an impact over this long a time. I gotta be honest. I just assumed he was in. I didn't. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Ali, I got one for you. Who is Mike Jordan cafeteria worker? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's another one of the great kind of five star stories that when PRC, you know, we were talking about the power of the story is the Michael Jordan story, right? So most people become acquainted with this uh, skinny freshman who hits the winning shot in the NCAA championship game against Georgetown. Um, But the essence of Michael Jordan can be seen through the five-star story, right? So... 
kind of contrary to the popular opinion, Michael Jordan wasn't an entirely unknown uh, commodity. But outside of the state of North Carolina, no one had heard of him. And it wasn't until he got to the five-star camp, which was through one of Garth's kind of uh, five-star connections and an assistant coach by the name of Roy Williams, who was a limited earnings coach on Dean Smith's staff. He augmented his salary by selling calendars <laughs> out of the trunk of his car. <laughs> what kind so of calendars? You think about, yeah, I, I don't know, but, uh, you know, geez, I don't know how much Roy makes now, but it's, it, it's gotta be a, <laughs> gotta be a long way. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be a long way from making 3000 bucks calendars. a year. Right? That's a lot of calendars. <laughs> Steve yeah. Alford calendars. Remember when he got in trouble for that? <laughs> I'll, I'll be down for one of those. <laughs> but, um, but, but it's a funny story in that, you know, Roy really had forged a really good relationship with Michael's parents. Um, Michael came to his attention through the athletic director of the Hanover Schools District, um, which was the high school that, that he played in. And he said, hey, man, there's this really good kid. We think he should go to your camp at North Carolina. And, you know, Michael goes there and he, and he just amazes and dazzles and Roy cannot believe just the raw energy, the competitiveness, the potential of this guy. And his high school coach, Pops Herring, says, yeah, you know, we're thinking about sending him to uh, Five Star and the other big camp, which was Bill Crownhour's camp, known as BC Camp, uh, back at the time. And so... Roy says, well, if you're going to send him anywhere, you need to send him to Five Star because it's the premier kind of teaching institution. And Dean Smith was in, was furious with him because at that time, no one on the national level was recruiting him. Um, and he knew that once he got to Five Star and showed who he was, that the cat would be let out of the bag. But, you know, long story short, Michael Jordan kind of walks in um, and, and, and there's, you know, there's a great story in the bookazine and I won't go into it in terms of how he wound up being drafted by the great uh, Tom Kachalski. Uh, but that's a really, really wow. funny story. People got to read um, that. Yeah, because, you know, the, the, the head coach of that team that Kachalski was, was drafting for, you know, had another guard that he wanted to draft and he was furious at Kachowski because Kachowski chose Jordan and the great quote from that was he screamed at him when he told him who the F is Mike Jordan <laughs> yeah, well, you, after that camp <laughs> the world found out who the F Mike Jordan was yeah if you think you know everything after watching The Last Dance you need to read this and then uh, update your knowledge <laughs> without a doubt and that's the beautiful thing about about Five Star and why PRC and I were so passionate about this project because, you know, there are so many ripe pockets to do some incredible storytelling about the history of the game. And, and Jordan is just like kind of one grain of sand on this huge beach. Mm. And I don't think people really understand how Five Star impacted them personally, if they love the game, and just what it meant overall to the development of modern basketball. So one of my favorite parts of the magazine, cause I'm a, I'm a, like an artifacts nerd, um, was the picture Carl that you guys put in of the original camp flyer 
um, in there. And so as soon as I pulled that up on the, the PDFs that, uh, PRC sent me the other day, I text PRC and I said, please tell me that this is the fold out poster because that thing was going into a frame and up on the wall, uh, down here. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the photography and PRC. And and you guys were talking earlier about 14,000, um, pieces of photography that you had to sift and sort through. Uh, first of all, just how much fun is that going through there? And, and kind of getting a, a history lesson in, in the five-star camp? Um, and then are there times where you can't get out of your own head on what picks to to use? Uh, yeah, so I'll start with just how cool it is to go through all these you know, artifacts, like you call them. Um, I remember the day PRC and I went and we got the um, camp flyer that you're talking about that we uh, featured in the magazine. And we're up in uh, our our chairman at at JDS Sports, Joe Sandberg's attic, where a lot of this stuff is stored. And I remember picking some of that stuff up. And I had this experience a lot when I'm looking at uh, the five-star photos, where you pick it up and you feel like you're almost time traveling, where, you know, I'm I'm a basketball guy. I grew up uh, in the 90s, early 2000s. I know what it's like to go to a basketball camp. Um, I've heard a lot of basketball coaches talk. And I'm like, well, this is what a basketball camp looked like. You know, just the way guys were dressed. <laughs> uh, I think I remember specifically picking up um, the, the camp flyer and looking at the price of camp and being like $100 for, for this week of um, Chuck Daly and Hubie Brown. Are you kidding me? For $100, that's, that's a great deal. And, you know, you realize that um, things were really different back in the day. I think there was like suggested clothing where it's telling you to make sure you bring your handkerchiefs. And I can't remember. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I can't imagine us writing a, a five-star camp flyer right now and saying, hey, make sure everybody, you know, comes to sleepaway camp and is bringing their handkerchief. Right. And I saw like some of the, in some of the photography that was chosen, I saw some of the guys were playing in like uh, their high school football, like cut off yeah. jerseys yeah. and shit. And I'm like, how in the hell are you playing bat- I think it only on said that. three shirts or something. I was real worried. I'm like, are they making them do laundry there? Yeah. It's, it, and, and like I'm saying, you know, I feel like I'm literally stepping in um, a portal and time traveling a little bit and seeing how, how different things were. But at the same time, um, one of the other really cool things I get to do is listen to our audio archive. So I'm, I'm looking at these photos and I'm getting that perspective. But then at the same time, I get to go listen, which is really, really putting yourself there. Um, you, you get to hear the language these guys use. Uh, you get to hear what kind of lessons they're talking about in basketball and in life in general. Uh, and you know, a lot of, a lot of things that, um, you're going to pick up and see in, in that, uh, camp flyer times have clearly changed. Um, but when you listen to some of these, these people speak, they were just so before their, and you know, I wasn't around in the sixties and seventies. So were they before their time or, or were these ideas that were spreading? I'm not sure, but they, they seem so before their time. And, and when you hear somebody like Coach K talk in, in, in the 70s and you you still feel the weight and, and, and the significance of everything he's saying, his ideas are, are passing the, the test of time. And I think it's, you know, it's a really cool dichotomy of just seeing um, how different things were, uh, but how similar some things were and, and what lasted, if that makes sense. Is there is there a... Um is there a particular audio tape that you listened to that really stood out or is there a particular um, picture in the magazine that is your favorite because you think it sums up all of that stuff that you kind of just talked about with the, the place time setting type type aspect? 
Yeah, so there's there's two that off the top of my head audio uh, recordings I really love. One is obviously Coach K. I'm a Duke guy, so just the fact that there was this this unheard piece of history, you know, Coach K on on a Tuesday in, in the '70s talking basketball like that. That was I was a kid in a candy shop. Sure. Talk. Um, the other one, and I, I'm blanking right now. The the head coach of Davidson, legendary guy. What's his name? Um, Oh, I'm totally blanking right now. He, he, he you keep talking. Here. I'll I'll find if out. PRC and I can't come up with it. We're in trouble. He's from, here. Long, he's from Long Island. He has white hair. Come on, you, you, just I'm letting you do trivia, Josh. Hubie, Bob, Bob McKillop. Bob McKillop. Oh yeah, Bob McKillop. I'm disappointed. Yeah. I'm sorry, man. I let you down. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Bob McKillop was one of the first, maybe three or so, uh, audio archives that I popped open. And I didn't really know what I was going to have to to discover there. And I'll tell you what, man, I I got so fired up when I heard Bob McKillop speak just about personal motivation, personal growth. He's speaking to this young audience and and I'm a young guy. I'm I'm 25. I I just left college athletics. And um, those are lessons that I needed to hear when I was younger. And um, people told me the things that he was saying. And I think they helped shape, you know, my trajectory. And uh, I'm just listening to it thinking, wow, you know, these kids in this audience, they are so, so lucky to be hearing Bob McKillop speak right now. And, and he spoke with energy, he spoke with enthusiasm, he was captivating, and I felt like I was there. Um, yeah, if, if we ever get to release that Bob McKillop uh, lecture, that, that would be something special. Yeah, I think I listened back to one of uh, you guys were on a different podcast and you talked about having all those audio files. And I was like, you could just do a whole series just re- releasing those and talking about those. It's unbelievable. I know that uh, one of the one of the articles is the think take of of hoops, just talking about the coaches. So I was going to come to PRC, but really, you know, Carl or anybody could jump in on that too. Just talking about wh- what that meant, like how that how the the uh, camp became that think tank. I think Ali too used some words that to describe it that were uh, incredible in the article about it too. So whoever wants to take that one first. Well, I could take a, I'll, t- I'll do a little quick preface to it. So that quote, the basketball's preeminent think tank was actually Tom Kanchowski who described it that way, but I'll, I'll set the table back in the first ever camp, 1966, right? It was only six months after the iconic Texas Western versus Kentucky game. You know, 71 kids get off the bus from New York City, mostly um, of all colors and backgrounds, literally playing basketball, staying in the same bunks together. And what happened very early on was because these kids were just starving for for instruction and the desire to get better, the coaches were almost it became contagious. They, They just really were competing with one another and wanting to be the best teacher of the game at the camp. So it kind of just really raised the intensity that so from that day one became a key part of five stars DNA. You know, you can name coaches until you're blue in the face that went from the high school ranks to college and pro that worked the camp, you know, starting as counselors and players that went from, you know, high school to D1 to the NBA that came to the camp. Right. But what made it special, the secret sauce was the intensity. Like Mm. I look back at it now, you know, over 20 years later, 
And, you know, when you're a 17, 16, 17 year old kid, you know, five star was brutal on you, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you'd wake up at 7 a.m. and Garth's got Sinatra music going. You don't, you don't come back in that bunk and you see where you go. Were you going to uh, station 13? Do you have enough energy to, to no, maintain? No, I was that kid, by the way. I, you know, I probably went to three out of the seven station 13s during the week. I was looking for. <laughs> That's why I was a D3 player. Yeah. But the, the, the think tank component of Five Star was that. It was the coaches wanting to, you know, the talent wanted to be harnessed and the coaches wanted to disseminate their knowledge that they had. And they saw it. It ultimately became a platform. Like I said, they knew that Garf had a lot of leverage and a lot of relationships with, you know, head coaches at the D1 level. So, you know, your five star te- when you're teaching the game at five star, you're also auditioning for your future job at all these different places. And college coaches, by the way, as you know, were coming in to recruit talent. So they could see you. They'd watch stations. They'd watch the players. They want to mm. see how they react to teaching. Right. Are they too cool for school to like, you know, high five and like lean into to wanting to learn? So, you know, the, the list of coaches that worked the camp or lectured the camp or just came to listen, like like Ali said, Mike Malone came to camp initially and he worked the canteen where they sold candy bars and T-shirts. <laughs> That's it crazy. was just like an all access pass to absorb and like through osmosis being around this you know, all this future Hall of Fame coaching talent. So it really is a think tank. I'll pass it to Ali to add some more context and flavor. That's great. No, I think that's one of the things that this, um, this is going to really help people digest, right? Because when we think of five-star, we think of the Jordan story, we think of all of this great talent. But I think one of the things that we really wanted to get across was the teaching aspect of it. I think that's just encapsulated by the fact that when this camp started in 1966, uh, Howard Garfinkel reached out to a guy by the name of Robert Montgomery Knight, who was the coach at the U.S. Military Academy. And, you know, Army had no business beating some of the teams that they were beating and some of these legendary college basketball doubleheaders at Madison Square Garden. And he approached uh, Bob Knight before he became Bob Knight, before he won national championships at Indiana, before he had ascended to this level of being considered one of the greatest coaches of all time and made him the director of basketball instruction uh, at the at the beginning of, of Five Star, right? And then it kind of blossoms from there. And PRC mentions this list of, you know, great coaches that come out of the, the high school ranks, right? And it's just fascinating to think that the camp probably would not have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for a guy by the name of Hubie Brown, who was the head coach at Fairlawn High School in New Jersey, who helped in terms of the recruitment of players and getting, um, you know, Garth these, these registrations that he needed to run the camp. And Garth said, you know, when he saw Hubie lecture, he knew that he was just much more than a high school coach, that his potential was through the roof. And that was another one of his talents, not just scouring to find, you know, the greatest players, but to identify these coaches at an early stage before they had even got into the college ranks, right? So Mike Patello was a JV football coach. <laughs> <laughs> when he got lured, lured to five-star, Crazy. right? Um Dick Vitale was a was a high school coach in New Jersey. Was still bald. Um, <laughs> yeah, no yeah, kidding. He, yeah. He's like the only one that still doesn't look young in those pictures. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
Yep. And, 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 and the book of Zine tells a great kind of story through John Calipari's own words of his journey yeah. through basketball, which began at five star. So without five star, he doesn't get a scholarship uh, to the university of North Carolina, Wilmington coming out of high school. Uh, just one day by chance in the summer, because the camp was held about five minutes away from where he lived in Robert Morris College near Pittsburgh. Uh, his mother and his aunt worked in the cafeteria at the college. So he stops by there one day just to hang out. He's sitting uh, in the stands, right? He's in college now and golf recognizes him and says, hey, kid, what are you doing here? I just came to hang out. Well, I got a coach that flaked on me. I need you to teach a station for me. And up until that point, Cal said his major goal was to be a high school teacher and a high school basketball coach. Yeah. But yeah. when he got on that stage, he realized that, hey, maybe I can do more. And it was through that, that interconnected web of Garth that Cal gets his first break because Garth calls up his guy by the name of Larry Brown, who's at the University of Kansas, who, by the way, Golf recruited to play on his AAU team <laughs> when Larry Brown was in high school. He recruited him to play for the Nationals team. I love that. So that's how far it goes back. And he calls up Larry Brown and says, hey, you got to put this kid on your staff. Yeah. Right? I, and, and so that's, that's, that's the beginning of, of Coach Cal Perry. That's that's so crazy. And he that interconnectedness, you're right back to that theme that you can see. I'm not even going to go into the dream team thing, but there's another thing talking about how all the connections there. But you mentioned uh the god the godfather in Indiana, which is Bob Knight, but there's a godfather at uh uh Five Star too, and I was going to bring it back to you, Ali, to talk a little bit about the godfather at uh the camp because he, that's a story I didn't know. You know, I I brought up Five Star to my nephews in high school and was shocked when he didn't know about it. So I'm pumped to give him this for Christmas, and uh, he's got some basketball homework from me. Uh, but this guy I didn't I didn't really know about, and he played such a uh, integral role to you know scouting in in college basketball. I'm talking about Tom. Sorry, Tom Konchowski. Yeah, yeah, Tom Konchowski, right? Uh, you know. Just another fascinating person within the fabric of the great folding of the modern game. And, you know, these guys kind of started out as bitter enemies because Tom Kraczalski was good friends with uh, Mr. Teinberg, who ran the rival AAU team, right? The New York Gems. So you think about kind of the rivalry between the bad boy Pistons and the Chicago Bulls, right? Or if you take it back to New York City, AAU lore, the the Riverside Church Hawks against the Bronx Gauchos. Um, The Gems and the Nationals were bitter rivals. They competed against one another. They poached each other's team for talent. And Konchalski was a friend of Timeberg who helped him with the Gems program, right? But eventually... You know, him and Garfinkel realize that they are kindred spirits, um, and and he plays a fascinating role in the development of scouting. Uh, he's a fixture at Five Star who helps build the camp, and he's just this person who is a legendary figure in high school gyms around the country. The people have called the last honest man in the gym. So that's that's another great chapter for people who love basketball, who are interested in the history and not just the usual cast of characters that people talk about. He is again, part of that legacy of one of the great architects that helped elevate the game to the level where what we see today. 
I'll tell you what, I, I love that. And I'll tell you I, I, a story from today. I was re- reading it and I had to Google a couple of words in there. So you write so well, <laughs> I, had to, I had to look up a couple of words and it just, it tells a story in such a fun way. When you, when you read it, the words jump off the page and make it come alive. That's such a great, great opportunity to, to have. Um, just to appreciate your, your work on that. I also appreciate you guys coming on today. We got a couple more questions. I'm going to throw the next one to PRC. I've got a half-baked idea here that I stole and just kind of want to get your take on it. So in 1989, Garfunkel and Five Five Star embrace developing a different side of the basketball talent. They start doing, uh, bring Bill Rafferty in. They've got (laughs) a hundred aspiring broadcasters and have a, uh, a broadcasting role with JDS sports and all the cool stuff you guys are doing. Uh, Is there any chance you guys are going to bring something like that back? And if so, where do I sign up? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can we go for free? (laughs) Scott, I will work in the cafeteria. (laughs) Well, I'll put it this way. It was before my time at Five Star. I become dear friends with Billy Raftery Jr., who grew grew up at the camp. You know, he went, he actually got a, you know, offer to play at Columbia University here in New York City. But I think he he gave up hoops after a year. He's now in the production business in Hollywood. He lives out in Malibu. But he always jokes like that was like a one and done in, in a bad way. The business <laughs> of the broadcasting school at Five Star flamed out pretty quickly. And, you know, I think the intent and spirit of, of what they were trying to create was definitely there, giving you know, kids an opportunity and platform to call games and obviously like, you know, learn by doing. Yeah. But the business of it, apparently, and I don't know where <laughs> it went wrong, but I used to hear Garf and them joke about it. Like every time you know, Bill Sr. and Garf would see each other. They talk about the broadcasting school. So <laughs> it lives on in infamy. Maybe, Gar- awesome. maybe, Gar- maybe Garf was in charge of that instead of Will. <laughs> yeah. JDS money, would not sorry. invest in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, towards the end of the magazine, you guys uh, write a little article about the future. And uh, PRC and Carl, this is, this is more for you guys. Um, I know you guys did the camp in 2019, and then it got canceled again in uh, because of COVID this year. Um, plans, if you guys just want to give me, um, you know, a few minutes on, on the future. And I know that there's a lot of, a lot of ways you can go with that. And I just want to give you guys the floor to tell us what the future of five star is now as it currently sits. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we always want to stay true to our mission, which is to teach the game of basketball. So camps and clinics will always be front and center. And uh, this year's camp, we actually didn't cancel it. We just pivoted it to a virtual That's camp right. with the MBPA. Yep. Nice. Um, shortened it a little bit just because kids were dribbling in their kitchens, which gets kind of awkward after three days. But uh Nonetheless, we always stand for teaching. Five Star, that's been its backbone from day one, having, you know, teaching stations were literally formed at the camp by, by Bob Knight. So that comes first and foremost. We're actually going to be doing that a lot at a new home base in, in Brooklyn at the brand new renovated Bedford Armory, which nice. has been, you know, Sweet. we'll have three full courts, two high school college regulation and one MBA regulation court. Mm. And um, it'll consist of like really three things, you know, quarterly basketball clinics that we usually will pop up on a day off when there's no school. We'll do our probably one to two summer sessions, you know, five stars tried and true like basketball camp format, four days of like high intensity instruction and in, in competing against top talent. And then we're working on what's called a development league. That'll be a 10 week program once in the fall. And then again in the spring, that is a progressive skill development. So like six weeks of skills and drills, all theme based, and then week seven to 10, 
will be, you know, competition format where you break into teams, take what you've learned during the skills and drills, right, and in and, and stations and applying those in, in game situations. And so it'll culminate with the quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals just because everyone wants to compete and win, and, and it's fun. <laughs> so that, that's first and foremost. Second is, you know, we really believe, Carl and I and, and, and Joe, our chairman, in giving back to the game of basketball. It's done a lot of good for us personally um, and, and, and Five Star specifically. So we partnered with Project Backboard and doing court refurbishments. And we committed to doing 10 of these over the next 10 years. Our first one was in Brooklyn in partnership with Kevin Durant. Uh, it came out really well. And we have one right now in production, literally should be done in the next 10 days, in partnership with Bill Walton in San Diego, yes, who wants to honor yes. his first basketball coach and pay tribute to him. So uh, with COVID, we'll probably unveil that with a plaque ceremony for his coach in March and plan to be there on the ground. Uh, and then third is content, right? We, you know, having Slam and Five Star in our portfolio, we were big believers in storytelling. That's where this bookazine was born. It's one way to tell the story. But we're also working, and I can't reveal too much info, but working on a podcast narrative, as I hinted at earlier, to tell the full story of Five Star in audio format, leveraging the archives that Carl brought up earlier, but also first person interviews that we're doing with all the folks that made five star what it became today. It's just another way to tell this rich story in the full tapestry of, of, of five star basketball. So those are the three core pillars uh, going forward. And, and, you know, Carl spends a lot of his day to day actually running the community management and publishing the social content and working with 199 to, to bring a merch capsule collection to life. So yeah. There's, a, there's always a lot going on. With Just went in the other room and saw saw the full uh, layout there. It looked incredible. So that's ex- that's exciting. And the that that shirt is absolutely iconic. I was even going through the magazine today and looking for uh, other things that Barnett needs to br- help bring back to life. I saw like a windbreaker and yeah. <laughs> I want the H the HSBI uh, little logo, Garf's like glasses uh, logo. I was like, oh, <laughs> everything. Give it give it give it all to me. We can probably well, the only we can probably I make could that get an orange white classic shirt because there was no chance I was making that all star game when, oh. I was, when I was there. But, but nobody knows that when you wear ours That's around right. now, you can make up any story you want to make up, <laughs> that, that and day. I do. <laughs> well, we want to uh, we want to just thank you guys again for sitting down and, and taking the time to talk to us. We we had a lot of fun uh, with this. I think that the the next time we all get together should be in Joe's attic so we can go through all those archives uh, <laughs> together. So if you guys Chevy can, Chase yeah, if you guys can set that up for us, we would uh, we would be greatly appreciative. So um, hey, just just yep. just one final thing, man. When you go through those archives and you see those papers that have coffee stains and they still smell like Garf cigarette smoke, you're gonna have an out of body experience. Oh, <laughs> I bet. I bet. I'm oh. here for it, man. I'm here for it. Definitely. Yo, Carl and I were there in July, sweating, trying to find two. You know, it's up in the attic. There's no AC up that way, and yeah. we were just sweating for an hour trying to find that original camp flyer. I bet. I bet. And then you didn't turn it into a poster. <laughs> and then we failed on you. Oh. <laughs> well, no photocopy it for exactly. you Exactly. Well, guys, we appreciate it, man. Thank you all for taking the time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the 19.9 podcast with HVS, the high volume shooters. For more information, check out the blog at 19.9.com under HVS. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and pick up some retro college shorts.